Well, good morning, Brown Corners Church. You'd think a uh, bunch of guys in suits and a pretty girl in a white dress would be coming up here instead of me, but sorry to let you down from that scripture reading this morning. Uh, if you've been in church for a while, you'll commonly hear this read at weddings. In fact, <clears throat> even many of our blockbuster movies feature 1 Corinthians 13, often also in the context of weddings. And 1 Corinthians 13 is fine for weddings. Husbands and wives should definitely consider what love is from this passage. But however, brides and grooms aren't the primary thing that Paul has in mind for this. By the understanding of the context of the letter of Corinthians, we'll actually find that 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is actually a rebuke chapter. It's showing how unloving the Corinthians actually are. By reading the first few chapters of Corinthians, we see that the church is incredibly divided in the letter. They're argumentative, they're prideful, there's sexual sin in the church, there's false beliefs from the outside world coming in, People are picking their favorite Christian leaders and forming divisive groups against one another there. They're not loving each other well. They're not loving God well. They're just loving themselves well. Paul writes this letter to correct this love and show them what love actually looks like. But what does love actually look like? What is love? Now, I have two stories to consider before we get back into the passage. Uh, the first story is from a guy named David Bennett, who's a Christian writer at Oxford University. He wrote about this question of defining love in his book called A War of Loves. In the book, he told a story from his partying years before he was a Christian. He went to this major party in Sydney, Australia. And when he would go to these parties, he was a journalism major at the time, and he would take this notebook around with him. And he would pass around this notebook with some of life's biggest questions on it and just have people answer it, fill in the blank. It could be, what's the meaning of life? What do you think happens to people after they die? How could you solve world hunger? He'd go around and he would ask all these big groups of people all these questions. And at this one particular party, he wrote the question, what is love? And went around and just had people fill it out throughout the night. Now, at the end of the night, he sat down to read back the answers. Most were superficial or sarcastic. Quite a few uh, said, baby, don't hurt me, from the popular song, What is Love? A uh, couple here and there were a little bit deeper. But at the end of the day, with pages and pages of answers, no one had a real explanation of what love is. As David sat there reading all these attempts at answering the question, he became angry. He writes, in all of our films, in our songs, in our art, we worshiped love, but yet no one can define it. I am convinced now more than ever that we don't have a good understanding of what love is. Not the prestigious professors in the cities, not the simple-minded folk in the cabin in the woods, not the Republicans, not the Democrats, not the Lions fans, not the Packers fans, all of us are struggling to find out what this word love means. We throw it around frequently. We say we love something at our most sincere moments, but also at our most insincere moments too. Everyone says they love, but what is it? 
if the alien E.T. showed up in your backyard and you had to explain to this little extraterrestrial what love is, how would you go about doing that? Here's our last story before we jump back into the text. There's an old sci-fi movie called Stalker that brings the point home to our love problem. Now, in the movie, there's a man named Stalker, and he's guiding two men, one by the name of Professor and the other by the name of Writer. He's taking these men to a place called the Zone. Now, within the Zone, there's a place called the Room. And the Room is rumored to grant your innermost desires. By embarking on this journey to the Room, they hope to find the deepest desires of their heart. Could be money, power, love, who knows what they'd find. As the men embark on the journey, the journey becomes more and more gruesome, though. The path is filled with violent traps and signs warning people to turn around and go back. The closer they get, the less enthusiastic they become. They meet two travelers who tell stories of the room. One of the stories features these two estranged brothers who, even though they hated each other, they united to go to the room on a quest for riches. But remember, the room only grants what is your greatest desire, not what you think is your greatest desire. Upon arriving at the room, the older brother enters first. A flash of light, and then there are no riches. He leaves the room, and he looks around for his mound of treasure and gold, but he finds nothing. He looks up, and upon making eye contact with his brother, his brother collapses. He's dead. The older brother realizes that his hate and envy for his brother was deeper than any of his desire for his riches. He's driven mad over the carcass of his now-dead brother, so he runs from the room, goes to a nearby tree, and hangs himself there. Despite the stories, stalker, professor, and writer continue on this journey for the room. And after traveling through what feels like a post-apocalyptic battleground, they finally reach the threshold of it. It's big and dark. It's abandoned. There's skeletons around from the former travelers who have gone there. Stalker tells the men, the room reveals all. What you get is not what you think you love, but what you most deeply love, what you most deeply desire. They begin to get cold feet and question, what if I don't know what I really want? So the Corinthians problem was a love problem. It wasn't an absence of love problem, but it was that they loved themselves primarily. They created divisions in the church to find people who just think, talk, and look like me. They used their pride to elevate themselves because being saved by grace was no longer good news to them. They made arguments for the sake of being right rather than the sake of loving others. And we can look down at our noses and see how bad a Christians the Corinthians were, but let's apply that same lens to ourselves. In Brown Corner's church, are there not quarrels amongst fellow Christians or husbands and wives here? Are people not taking sides against each other? Is our church free from sexual sin or pornography? Do we not have people who sit in pride with Bible knowledge or political knowledge? 
The reason we have all these things happen to us is because we just love ourselves so stinking much. If everyone talked like me, thought like me, lived like me, then the world would finally be a better place. If everyone just listened to me for the truth, or followed me for the way, or mimicked my life for the life, then we could solve all these problems. But do you see what you've just done there? You've just created yourself to be a savior. You're now the way, truth, and life for someone. Look at how Paul addresses those as we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries, have all knowledge, have a faith that can move mountains, but not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give my body to hardship, but not to love, I gain nothing. Now, I love the subtle difference in wording that Paul uses here. I am nothing, and I gain nothing. Now, have you ever noticed with a completely selfish person before, they seem like they're hollow inside? Like there's nothing going on in there apart from whatever's in their heart and mind. That's what Paul is getting at here. You can win every Facebook argument, but if you have not loved, you are nothing and gain nothing. You can have church be just like you want it to be, and it can still be just as hollow. You can have your spouse say and do and act every way you want, and your marriage still empty. Love that puts you at the center of the room creates a black hole for everyone else around you. We have to fix our loves because we just continue to consume and consume and make everything about me and destroy everything that we come across. Which just brings us to what Paul's list is of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always hopes, trusts, and perseveres. Love never fails. Now, the irony of this list is that Corinthians look like the total opposite of it because they're not being patient. They're not being kind. They're boasting. They're prideful. They're puffing themselves up. They're self-seeking. They keep a record of each other's wrongs. They're also not protecting, trusting, or hoping or persevering for each other. And because their love looks like the opposite of this, it fails. What are they to do? Now, this is the crucial part of the message here. Because there are two roads that we can take. A first and a second road. The first road is that we can <clears throat> see this as uh, things that we need to do on the list. If we want to love, we must be patient, we must be kind, we must be humble, we must be protecting, and etc. The first road says, do it, then you will be loving. But the problem is, the first road will nearly kill you. I'm guessing all of us have tried the first road at some point. We've all tried to do the list, but we've just burnt out over it. 
the bills became too high, the kids became too loud, your uh, spouse became too aggravating, your job was too demanding, and so here you are again, wondering how do you love? So instead of the first road, I invite you to the second one, the road of experiencing it, the road I think that Paul is getting to here. Notice with Paul's list, he says, love is and isn't. It does not say love does. The first row, you see, can miss the whole point because Paul never says, okay, now go do that. He doesn't list these as the ingredients of love. No, love just is these things. It flows out to be patient. It flows out to be kind. This list is the flavor of what love is, but not the ingredients of it. Love is patient. It is kind. Love doesn't boast. Love isn't self-seeking. It just is. And what also becomes shocking is that you go down the list, you see love starts to become personified from the list. Love doesn't delight in evil. Love bears all things. It protects. It trusts and hopes. It's as if Paul depicts love as a person. Because a person protects. A person trusts and hopes. I believe Paul is depicting love as a person for two reasons. One, he depicts love as a person because that is the only way that love will ever come into our lives. Tim Keller, in his sermon, Love the Most Excellent Way, was what helped me best understand this. Because nobody learns to love by trying. You only learn to love by experiencing it. You need someone to pick you up and love you in order for you to know how to pick others up and love them. This is why our sons become husbands like their dads and our daughters become wives like their mothers, whether that's for good or for bad. None of us discovered love in a textbook. We discovered it when we were loved. It's also why the science says it's so important to pick up babies, to hold them, talk to them, smile at them, to laugh with them. Because if they don't, we don't do that with babies, they grow up to have significant psychological studies when they aren't held and loved and talked to and smiled at. Unless you meet love, you will never be loving even if you try and mimic what Paul's list is here. Because love is an active force, not just a set of principles. It must be felt before it can be replicated. So where are we going to meet a person that loves like this? And this is the second reason why I believe Paul personifies love to be a person. He has that person in mind. Because what person has loved us so patiently, even when we have gone throughout the day not loving them? Or what person has given us everything that we have solely out of generosity without strings attached to it? What person looks at our record and sees it as white as snow? What person has offered a love that's never failed? Only the love that has conquered death for you. Because you see, the love that Jesus showed on the cross by saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, that is the love that 1 Corinthians 13 points to. And the only way for us to have our loves changed, 
to have our innermost desires adjusted from ourselves to God and others is to look that person of love in the face. Like the old hymn, The Wonderful Cross, goes, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, it demands my life, my soul, my all. Until we gaze into the eyes that have seen us since our mother's womb, until we look at the hands that were pierced for us, until we taste of the separation that Jesus took from the Father on the cross, we won't have our loves changed. We're going to continue being a black hole that's just trying to get everything to fill us. We're going to continue to argue, to fight, to have sexual sin, to be nothing, to be hollow, to be empty people. This is what love applied rightly looks like. And until we drink of that love, until we drink of Jesus' love, we'll never find the flavors of patience, kindness, truth, perseverance, and hope. But before we could end the message on that, we need to address the tangibles of what this love actually tangibly looks like for the Christian. Because while I've pointed out that verses 4 through 7 are not the ingredients that make love, I do believe that if we look through Scripture, we can find the actual fundamental ingredients that God's love is. We find these ingredients nearly everywhere that God demonstrates his love for his own people. And these ingredients are that God's love is unconditional, and God's love is self-emptying. <clears throat> Let's consider that. Only a love that is unconditional can be patient. If you can't be patient, then your love is conditional based on time or how quickly someone can get ready or do whatever it is you're looking for. But a love that's based unconditionally is completely patient. What about a love that's self-emptying? Well, the only way that you can truly be kind is if, is if you are self-emptying. Because if you do things out of kindness solely for praise from the other person, or maybe a favor down the road from them, or you do the kindness just to make yourself feel good about you, then it's not kindness. It's just selfishness disguised as kindness. Only if it is self-emptying can love truly be kind. What if we exemplified a love like that? What if Brown Corners Church featured marriages where spouses loved each other in such a self-emptying way that they are constantly pouring into each other rather than waiting for the other spouse to make the first move? Or what if our fellowship here was so unconditional that even when church members have the total opposite opinion of you on something that you really care about, your love for them is more important to you than winning the argument? The love that Christ has shown is unconditional and self-emptying. That love has never failed. And while everything else will fail and fade, that love will remain. The only question is, does your love look like that? Does your love look different than the rest of Clare County? 
Is your love more unconditional and self-emptying than the people who live down the street from you? Or are you quick to argue online? Are you quick to hold a record over your spouse? Are you slow to extend your friendship to someone who thinks differently than you? One of the most influential Bible teachers in Christian history, guided by the name of Augustine, wrote this quote that we'll close on. If you believe, hope, and love, it doesn't mean that you are immediately declared safe and sound and saved. It makes a difference, you see, what you believe, what you hope for, what you love. Nobody, in fact, can live any style of life without these three sentiments of the soul, of believing, of hoping, and of loving. If you don't believe what the world believes, and you don't hope for what the world hopes for, and don't love what the world loves, then you are. You're gathered among the nations. And don't let your physically being mixed up with them alarm you. When there is such a wide separation of minds, what, after all, could be so widely separated that they believe demons are God, but you, on the other hand, believe in the God who is the true God? So if you believe something different from them, hope for something different. Love something different. You should prove it by your life, demonstrate it by your actions. So if you believe something different from them, hope for something different from them. If you love something different, you should prove it by your life, by your actions. And so my question is, are you hoping for something different? Are you hoping for God's kingdom to come and all other countries and nations and governments are going to bow before his kingdom? Do you believe something different? That your standing before God doesn't matter how you run your business, how nice of a life you live, how you raise your kids, how much you give to the community, who you vote for, how many church services you've attended, but solely your stance with Christ is what matters. Does your love look different? Do you only love people who look, talk, and act like you, like the rest of the world does? Look into the eyes that have loved you and never lost you. Look at the hands that have been stretched out and pierced for you. Look at the empty tomb that was meant for you to be inside. Look at the king over all creation that now calls you friend. That is the source of love that will change you. Let that be your source of love. No longer a conditional love, no longer a self-filling love, but unconditional but self-emptying, because that's the love that has existed longer than the stars in the sky, and that's the love that's offered for you and to me today. Let's pray and close. Heavenly Father, thank you for the love that you've poured out for us. Thank you that before the world was even created, you knew us and loved us. You knew us by our names. Thank you that you've given us a love to call us your children, call us your friends, to pursue us in love. God, would that be the love that describes us as Christ followers? 
would your Holy Spirit fill us that rather than putting up walls against those who don't know you, rather, Lord, would we pursue? Would we share that love? Would we continue to chase after people just as you have chased after us? Because that is the love that we were made to mimic. That's the love we were made to experience. And that's the only love that will make us feel whole. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you this week. And may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. You're dismissed.